Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. When I first started, I didn't know what I was doing. But every day you learn more and you gain more wisdom from that. Why is she still in this? Why is her dad making all of her decisions? I have always viewed the situation as something that I don't think would have ever happened to a man in America. Trust me, there are days that I have, I struggle with myself. I trust the system. I believe the law is aimed at actually protecting the conservative. There were things out there that have been said about me that aren't completely true. We stand up for you, Britney Spears, and we won't stop until you reach freedom. I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Today, we're speaking with Mary Robertson and Liz Day from the New York Times about their doc, Framing Britney Spears, which explores her rise as a pop star and the conservatorship that she's been under since 2008. Conservatorship, known as a guardianship here in Canada, is a legal arrangement where a conservator gains power over the life and estate of a conservatee, who has been deemed unfit to take care of themselves by a court. It's a relatively rare arrangement for a young person like Britney Spears, but her situation has added layers of complexity because of her fame, fortune, and family. Jamie Spears, her father, would argue they only have her best interest at heart and they love her, but ultimately they also are drawing a salary, and in Jamie's case, he was approved to receive 1.5% of the revenues of the Las Vegas tour. So, you know, money is inextricably linked to the conservatorship, for sure. That was Liz Day. She's been following Britney's story for years and tracking the Free Britney movement. This group of fans are dedicated to uncovering the reasons why Britney has been held in the conservatorship for years against her will. But as we learn in the doc, there's a lot we don't know about her situation. When the judge told me, Mr. Streisand, I'm not going to let you represent her. I'm going to appoint somebody. I felt that was not the right decision by the judge. I felt that based on my interactions with Britney, that she was capable of retaining me and directing me and that the judge should have allowed that to happen. The doc also challenges the viewer to think about their own complicity in the events that led up to this life-changing legal decision. Why did we all look on as Britney's life was imploding? Why was it all on her to make it stop? To quote one famous fan, why didn't we just leave Britney alone? And so she's saying essentially with no hair, I quit. Whatever you guys are looking for, in terms of me coming back and being that person again, I'm not, that person is gone. And you have, you have destroyed her. The idea that people could look at that and only see a crazy person, well, just, that just tells me that, you know, what a, what a vulturous society she was working with to begin with. Mary and Liz help us dive into the rise of the Princess of Pop, our changing perception of young, successful women, and what's next for Britney Spears. Stay with us. Liz Day and Mary Robertson, thank you so much for joining me on OnDocs today. Thrilled to be here. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Well, I have to ask, Mary, maybe I'll start with you, Mary. Uh, what kind of spurred you to put this doc together? So let's go back to the beginning. I work as the showrunner and executive producer on the show, the series, The New York Times Presents. And what that 
means in part is that I work with the team to help uh, solicit and refine ideas. And many months ago, Liz Day, my brilliant colleague, walked in and said, what if we did OJ Made in America, but for Britney Spears? And I thought it was an Mm. utterly persuasive pitch in brief one sentence, but I thought that that alone was persuasive and persuasive because I think that what OJ made in America, one of the many beautiful things that that film did was provide a tremendous amount of context so that by the time you land in the account of the trial, um, you're bringing empathy and perspective um, to the experiences of many people that you might not otherwise have understood fully. And so when Liz said, OJ made in America but for Britney Spears, I thought, well, this would be tremendous to do for Britney Spears as well, to bring context and perspective to some of these um, iconic moments in her life that uh, many of us who lived through those experiences remember, but perhaps didn't understand even at the time. So th- that was part of what appealed to me. And I will let Liz talk a little bit more about what brought the idea you know, to her attention. And I know this is something that she had um been interested in for some time. So Liz, what drew you to it initially? Yeah, so I guess being in a similar age range as Brittany, I've always felt a sort of nostalgic connection to her. I remember back in high school, she was, you know, America's golden girl, Miss Perfect. Everyone wanted to be her. Um, And then I also remember my early 20s, watching her get battered by the paparazzi and the tabloids and becoming this national punchline that I certainly felt complicit in laughing along with. Um, And, you know, just her extraordinary rise and then her public struggles, all of that felt worth plumbing to see what we could learn about ourselves as a society. And then additionally, I would say the mystery that the conservatorship poses was also very attractive. You know, there's this contradiction between Britney is presented to us as the superstar who's able to perform in Las Vegas and make millions of dollars and host X Factor and operate at a very high level, while at the same time be so supposedly so severely at risk and vulnerable that she needs this intense legal protection. And, you know, experts say that's almost unheard of. Uh, They know of no other case like this. So I think there was a real attraction to trying to better understand, you know, how can those two things both be true? Well, I want to touch on the conservatorship in a, bit, a little bit later, but um, at first, I think we should kind of go back and, and start from Britney Spears's origins. Um, you know, she's this young kid kind of coming from a small town in Louisiana. Uh, she rises to become this, you know, big pop star. Can you just talk about how she went from, you know, her kind of her humble origins to, you know, the superstar that she became? Sure. So um, as we cover in the film, she's from a tiny town in Louisiana called Kentwood. And it's very, very small, humble, modest origins. You know, her mother is a uh, school teacher and her father um, has severe alcohol issues. He later goes to rehab. He, you know, doesn't necessarily hold down a stable job as Brittany's growing up. Uh, They later file for bankruptcy. And Brittany is quite unique in that from a very young age, she's extremely driven. And so she becomes, you know, a quite a skilled dancer. She starts to compete in gymnastics. Um, she trains at the like Olympic level with the, um, the Caroli, the famous Caroli Ranch in Texas. She's like trying to develop all of these talents at a very high level. And then eventually acting, she gets a big break with the Mickey Mouse Club and then 
later becomes um, a singer. And what's quite remarkable about Britney's story is, you know, her debut is like an immediate success. Um, Baby One More Time, you know, just breaks records almost as soon as it's released. And from there, you know, that's the Britney we all know. Um, But I think we were surprised in our reporting and research to better understand, you know, the humble background she came from and just how driven and talented and hardworking she was at a very young age. And this next song is my first single and it's called Baby One More Time. Mary, there's this kind of cringy moment in the film where you're watching her as, a, I guess, a 10-year-old being interviewed by Ed McMahon, and he asks her whether she has a boyfriend. This is a 10-year-old. Um, this interest in her personal life, even from such a young age, why? Wasn't that clip um, incredible? I, I think that there were a couple of archival clips that um, uh, I think sort of moved us all when we first encountered them, in part because they seemed to be laced with meaning and to hold to sort of tell not just one story but many stories and I think that the star search clip you're referencing does that I think it's laced with meaning and when I watch that clip I see a she I believe she was 10 at the time a 10 year old presenting with tremendous talent her voice is extraordinary and if you only know the Britney um, of autotune or you know of the produced singles then you you might be unfamiliar with this voice, but it's incredible. And she's poised and she has charisma. So you're presented early on with a talent that is, I think, extraordinarily rare. And then you're also presented with an older gentleman who, yes, who meets her, not by speaking directly to her talents, but by asking her if she has a boyfriend. So you're you're meeting also the way in which the culture is receiving and presenting and representing her. I noticed last week you had the most adorable, pretty eyes. Do you have a boyfriend? No, sir. Why not? They're mean. Boyfriends? You mean all boys are mean? I'm not mean. How about me? Well, it depends. I get that a lot. And when I watch that clip, I sometimes wonder if her path was preordained if the quality and nature of her talent was so great that her success, her being thrust into superstardom was inevitable. And if the quality and nature of the culture that received her was of such a nature that the way in which we sort of voraciously consumed her and represented her, um, you know, would lead to this sort of inevitable public unraveling as well. So yes, I think it's a, it's a, you know, so much comes from that one clip. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, Liz, this this focus on her her pers- like her, her body, you know, her image, um, you know, contrast that with I mean, the people in the film who talk about her her talent, her the competence that she she showed, you know, just the the control she had. Um, how did the media kind of I guess miss that that side of her? Yeah, it's really interesting because I was taken aback by I read every Britney biography I could get my hands on, and when I was reading them, I was so taken aback by how hardworking she was. She was basically like operating at a pro athlete or CEO level. And I think through today's lens, you know, you would hear that cheered on as like, you know, uh, lean in or boss babe or whatever that would be like celebrated (laughs) as feminist and very cool. Um, Whereas back then, no one was recognizing that, which is really interesting. And we talked to some Jive record executives in the early days who were saying like, 
we had to remind ourselves that she was like 16 in our meetings. And we were like, we have to bake in, you know, an hour off in the schedule or a day off and like Mm. remind ourselves that she's human and she's a child um, with how hard she was working. So I think it was really, that was a real revelation for us. And it was so interesting that it was never really commented or recognized. Whereas what was you know, palpable in every interview with her was her body, was her sexuality, was, you know, her appearance. And I'm not naive to think that that doesn't happen at all today, but I do think you you don't see it to that same degree. And especially with, you know, female celebrities who are so young, it's, you know, recognized now that's not a good look to be asking them if they have breast implants or they're still a virgin. That you'll remain a virgin until you get married. Yeah. And my mom always told me, once you have sex with a guy that, you know, you're with or whatever, it's like so many more emotions are involved and everything gets like, you know, crazy and twisted. That's what Brittany told me last August. Nine months later, Us Weekly's Todd Gold posed the same question. And she said, quote, I want to wait to have sex until I'm married. I do. I want to wait. Well, Wesley Morris, who's a colleague of yours at The New York Times, you know, he he bring, he, he makes this connection between Britney Spears and... Uh, the coverage, I guess, of Monica Lewinsky, you know, the, the scandal with the, the with Bill, Bill Clinton. What, what exactly is that connection there, Mary? Well, I do think it's important to look at Britney's story in context. So one way in which we're doing that is to place her next to the simultaneous events. Uh, Monica Lewinsky is, was central to our culture, you know, concurrent with uh, Britney's ascension. And, you know, Monica was a young woman who was represented at times as having agency um, and at times as, you know, being a woman who had desires and who controlled them. And at times as being a woman who did not, who did not have agency and was, you know, it, trapped in a or caught in a dynamic with an incredibly powerful man, perhaps the most powerful man in the world. And I think many uh, women and feminists at the time, and certainly, you know, the culture at large was struggling with how to understand and represent her and her sexuality in that moment. And, you know, I, I guess I might be being a little bit charitable by saying that we were, um, we as a culture were struggling with how to represent her, because I think the manifestations of that struggle were often cruel. And one feels comfortable saying that now when we look back and, you know, see the ways in which um, she was represented as, um, you know, white trash or slutty in some ways. So I think that, you know, when a young woman you see with Brittany, you see with Monica, a young woman presenting as, you know, with a degree of sexuality and a degree of agency, and it's sort of scrambling our culture's signals and that yielding some, you know, arguably cruel commentary. <laughs> Well, to what extent do you think, like when she starts dating, you know, she's she's in these high profile relationships with Justin Timberlake, Kevin Federline. What what role do the men in her life kind of have in, in, I guess, creating misconceptions about her? That's a great question. I think that we were careful and our producer, director, Samantha Stark would bring this up a lot not to define Britney's story by the men in her life, because that's often what you see, like literal chapters of her story with, you know, here's the Justin chapter and here's the Kevin Federline chapter. So we were trying to be thoughtful around not doing that, not defining her by her relationships. 
But it is quite interesting that, you know, the Justin relationship starts out as, you know, America's golden couple. And Wesley Morris calls it like very high school, you know, the head cheerleader and the pro football player together. Um, And that goes south. And the narrative very much so becomes that Brittany is the villain, Um, you know, whether or not she cheated on him or what exactly happened. Uh, We don't know, but she very much so becomes, you know, the bad girl. And then you see the tabloids afterwards focusing on her dating life in a way that is really interesting through a 2021 lens because she dates Colin Farrell. I think she dates Fred Durst. You know, she's having normal relationships for a young 20-something woman who's independent and dating around. And she very much so gets portrayed as like the slut. Um, and, you know, just having these very salacious um, affairs. And um, after that, then you see her, you know, have the 55-hour marriage to Jason Alexander, her childhood friend. And it's really interesting the way that her parents swoop in and her manager swoops in right after that happens. Um, And it's been described by people close to the situation as the moment they realized, like, we might not be able to control her. And she, you know, her fortune may, you know, be up for grabs. Um, And so that's like a real wake up call for the people around her. And then very shortly after that, she meets Kevin Federline and they get married within, you know, a few months of dating and uh, they have their first child. And less than a year after that, they have their second child. So I think that, you know, one unifying theme around Britney's relationships is like she seems to get very serious very fast. Um, And she was also very vocal from a young age about like how important she took marriage, family and having children. And that was a real also revelation towards us. You know, we didn't realize how important her kids were to her and how serious she took her family. Well, I want to I want to bring in the media's uh, role in this because you know you you do interview um, a photographer, one of the paparazzi who was following her. He was involved in this uh, incident in 2007 when she was basically pleading for privacy and was being barred from seeing her kids. And his name is Daniel Ramos. And Mary, I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about you know what he and I guess the other um, uh, people in the media kind of see as their role in her her story. Mm-hmm. I guess I don't want to put words in Mr. Ramos's mouth. Um, Danny Ramos. I don't want to put words in his mouth, certainly, but I I know enough of Danny and I've had a you know conversations with him to know that he uh, wrestles with his he grapples with his role in Brittany's trajectory, and I don't think that he um, can offer a simple clear narrative there, and perhaps there is not a simple clear narrative, um, which is to say that I think um, he feels somewhat complicit. I think he does feel that he participated in a system that was profiting on her misery. I think he also feels that at times, and perhaps early in his interactions with her, that she didn't find their presence to be objectionable and perhaps even solicited the coverage early on. And I think he sees himself as probably someone who was engaging in a dialogue with her, so would make space for asking questions. How are you? <laughs> I think you hear him say, how are you in the film at one point in time? I looked at Brittany from the windshield 
and I was videotaping her and I said, how, how are you doing? You doing okay? I'm concerned about you though, okay? I think, you know, his reflections on his role uh, in her trajectory, uh, frankly, mirror many of our own. And one of the, you know, one of the things that's been so moving about the response to the film is that we've seen so many who have viewed the film wrestle with their own complicity. And I think what that means when we say complicity is that sense is wrestle with the understanding that most of us who... Um, you know, we're um, conscious <laughs> around the era of her ascendant. We're laughing at uh, many of the jokes that were put out by late night hosts or buying the magazines that had defamatory headlines on their covers. And if we weren't laughing at them, I think most of us weren't challenging the dominant narrative around her and around other women who were in similar positions at the time. And I, I include myself in that. I don't think I challenged the narrative at the time. I might have felt that it didn't quite add up at times, but that was an internal dialogue and not an external dialogue. And I remember yeah. one of the first times we watched a rough cut of the film. So the first time everything was sort of put together in relationship to each other, having a conversation with a couple members of the team in which we said, holy cow, we feel complicit, you know, and then wondering, would anyone else pick up on this? You know, would the audience and watching it, would they feel that too? And we really didn't know that anyone would. We didn't know that anyone would. So to see this response in which an audience is engaging with that so explicitly has been deeply moving. Well, you mentioned the the, the jokes made at her expense and by late night talk show hosts, and um, I want to just play a clip for you guys. This is a this is from late late show host Craig Ferguson, and he's basically saying enough's enough when when all this was going down. Um, let's just have a listen to that. You know, and I, I and I I'm starting to feel uncomfortable about making fun of these people. And for me, comedy should have a certain amount of joy in it. It should be about about us attacking the powerful people, attacking the politicians and the and the Trumps and the and the blowhards and the uh, going after them. <laughs> We shouldn't be attacking the vulnerable people. And I think, I, I'm gonna, this is totally a mere call, but this is just for me. I think my aim's been off a bit recently. I, I, I wanna change it a bit. So tonight, no Britney Spears joke. This woman has two kids. She's 25 years old. She's a baby herself. She's a baby. Liz, what did you think of that, uh, that moment? Uh, I guess as her life was imploding. What was it like to hear that? Yeah, uh, we came across that in our research when we were looking for examples of how late night comedians talked about Britney during this era. And it really struck me because it just felt so ahead of its time, you know, that Craig was certainly out there as uh, an outlier who was, you know, talking about compassion for Britney. And he spoke about his own issues with substance use and um, public struggles. And um, I think that was really you know, that was really ahead of his time. Um, because you contrast that with Jay Leno making the worst cheesy jokes about her shaving her head, or, you know, I think even Letterman is making some like nasty jokes. Um, in hindsight, we, we didn't include it in the film, but you see on Twitter, Sarah Silverman had a famous, uh, bit that she did at the VMAs 
um, when she called Britney's two kids adorable mistakes and made fun of, you know, an upskirt uh, photo that the paparazzi took of Britney. And um, she's apologized for that in recent days after the documentaries premiered. People have asked her about it. But it, but that was very much so the norm. Um, so, you know, I hope that all this reckoning and these conversations can, like, help all of us reflect upon who we might be doing this to today and help, you know, change some of our uh, judgments and our behavior towards people moving forward. Well, I, I want to move on to the, the conservatorship, but I guess we should just mention, you know, in 2008, Brittany goes into rehab and then I guess kind of take us through what happens after her when, when that happens. I guess what happens to her life uh, after that point? So um, as we cover in the film, it kind of starts in the fall of 2006. That's when Brittany has her second child. Um, and uh, shortly after that, she uh, files for divorce from Kevin Federline. And that starts this custody battle that plays out um, at least over the next year or two. And, um, you know, Brittany over that period starts to lose visitation rights. She loses custody of the kids. And um, by different people's accounts, that really affects her. Um, her mother, Lynn, writes in her book, she thinks Brittany is grappling with postpartum depression at this point. Um, Brittany also starts going out with Paris Hilton and getting a lot of tabloid attention for partying and being a bad mom. Um, so then 2007 starts, that's when she goes in and out of rehab a few times. She uh, has the umbrella incident, she shaves her head. Uh, she has the VMA appearance by the end of 2007 in which, you know, the public is really questioning what happened to Britney Spears. And then this all culminates in a very intense period in January 2008, where in the space of that single month, Britney is uh, involuntarily hospitalized on a psychiatric hold known as a 5150 twice in one month. Amid a media frenzy, the 26-year-old pop star was brought by ambulance to a Los Angeles hospital from her Beverly Hills home. Another chapter in her long-running custody battle with ex-husband Kevin Federline over their two sons. So the day after that second hold, her father files for the conservatorship over her. It's temporary at first, and then it eventually becomes permanent by the end of 2008. How does this uh, how does this work exactly? Like, how does it work, I guess, in compared to others? Yeah. So conservatorships are these really unique, extreme legal arrangements in which someone, a conservatee, is deemed unfit to take care of their personal life um, or and or uh, their money. And um, someone else files for a conservatorship over them and petitions a judge and provides some evidence. And there may be a medical evaluation involved. Um, and if the judge grants the conservatorship, they give special powers to someone called a conservator over the conservatee. So in Britney's case, her father, Jamie Spears, was given control of her personal life. And then alongside a lawyer named Andrew Wallet was also given control over her uh, estate, also known as her fortune. To what extent do you think it, this is just about I guess controlling her her money and her her she's like she's like a business right like she's kind of like a like you know like Michael Jackson was to some extent to what extent do you think this conservatorship is about that you know it's really hard to say and to speculate we've certainly heard from different experts opinions that they think that money is certainly a big incentive to be part of the conservatorship 
Um, under the conservatorship, Brittany goes back to work almost immediately. She is guest hosting on network TV. Um, she produces an album and is uh, doing a sold out uh, tour about a year after the conservatorship. And she starts bringing in a lot of money. And then that really culminates in the Las Vegas residency, which, you know, there are reports from TMZ that her she's bringing in about a million dollars a week through the Las Vegas residency. So you're certainly right that she is a big brand in a way that, you know, only Madonna and Michael Jackson really have been. Um, and, you know, the conservators would argue they like Jamie Spears, her father would argue they only have her best interest at heart and they love her. But ultimately, they also are drawing a salary. And in Jamie's case, he was approved to receive 1.5% of the revenues of the Las Vegas tour. So, you know, money is inextricably linked to the conservatorship for sure. Well, you know, she's she seems I mean, in, the, in that period after when, when she's declared a, she's under this conservatorship, she looks like you mentioned, you know, she's doing this residency in Las Vegas. She's uh appearing on television she seems to be okay and she seems to be functioning all well so well so why does she still need to be under this conservatorship what's going on so that's a big blockbuster question a 60 million dollar question um <laughs> you know yes she does appear to be totally fine and able to function at a high level um, it's also, though, we should note, very difficult to interview her freely. She's very tightly controlled by her handlers. So it's not as if journalists can get access to ask her, like, do you how do you feel about this conservatorship? Do you want it to end? Um, you know, a lot of the court records are sealed. We don't know necessarily whether or not she's ever asked the judge, you know, to end it or for certain strictures to change. We do know that recently she has petitioned the judge or her lawyer has filed court documents um, claiming that Brittany does not want her father in charge of her fortune, saying she doesn't want to perform ever again until he's no longer in charge of her fortune and that she's told him repeatedly she's afraid of her father. Um, and the judge has not uh, the judge did not remove Jamie um, and, you know, left the door open to potentially removing him down the line. But for now, he's still in power and he's not stepped down. But she's not making any new music, is she? And, and as far as her freedom to move around, like she can go out and stuff, right? There's a lot of speculation as to like what specific strictures Britney is under. You hear people speculate that, you know, she can't necessarily drive to where she wants to when she wants to. Um, we were not necessarily able to corroborate the, that sort of speculation on the record. Um, we know from the court documents that her conservators have a lot of power over her. Her um, father, when he was conservator, the person had the ability to control who visited her um, and who could not visit her, uh, had the power to uh, retain security for her 24-7, to communicate with her doctors, access her medical records, and then um, just be deeply, deeply involved with her business, make business deals for her, do contracts, file lawsuits on her behalf. Um, so, you know, she certainly, she cannot fully control her life or her career. Well, now we have this free Britney movement that's come on the scene. And, uh, I, I, I'll be honest, I hadn't heard of this before. I, I think when I was watching the the clips of them talking about, you know, it sounded like she was a political prisoner and, and Mary, maybe you could talk a bit about just what this free Britney movement is about really. Mm, I might ask Liz to talk about that as well. 
Sure. So the free Britney movement is quite diverse. So, you know, it's hard to kind of treat them as a monolith as they all believe X or they are all Y. But I think generally um, they all want to raise awareness about Britney's legal situation and also inquire about her well-being. And, you know, fans like the free Britney movement often get viewed as like, you know, juvenile or a little extreme. Um, but I think we were surprised how many of them are really uh, diligent legal researchers. You know, they're often pulling the court documents, paying for them from the LA courts website and posting them online and dissecting them and analyzing them. And I think it's also important to note that, you know, Jamie Spears called them a conspiracy theory and a joke. Um, but Brittany, through her lawyer in August of 2020, said, um, you know, Brittany uh, welcomes this informed support of her fans. She opposes her father's effort, efforts to seal all the records and keep this hidden away like a family secret. And she, you know, encourages this interest and curiosity from the public and her fans. There seems to be more awareness, you know, around, I think, um, celebrities and kind of how we treat them. We, you know, we've talked about some of the apologies that have been made uh, by Sarah Silverman. Justin Timberlake recently came out and apologized. And, um, you know, I guess I wonder about these new stars. You know, we have the Billie Eilish, we have Ariana Grande, we have Taylor Swift now. You know, do you think the media is giving, is treating them better than they treated, they treated Britney Spears? I, I mean, I do think there's um, heightened sensitivity, um, both amongst the media and amongst the culture that is devouring the um, product that the media is putting forth. I admit to not being a close student of the ways in which Billie Eilish is represented as one example. Um, I do think it's worth asking ourselves as we absorb the Britney film and engage in the conversations that have sprung from it. Um, I think it's worth asking ourselves whether or not the casual by which I think we often mean sort of omnipresent uh, misogyny that so many have observed in the culture in the late 90s and the early aughts, whether or not that has um, been sort of eradicated by Me Too, whether or not it has been diminished by Me Too, um, or whether or not it's really um, uh, sort of shape-shifted into something else. <laughs> and if it's shape-shifted into something else, what is it? And I've certainly seen a dialogue start online um, and I would love to see it grow, you know, in which we're looking and asking ourselves at the dialogue that's happening and the commentary on Reddit, um, on TikTok, on other platforms. You know, we don't we're no longer sort of structured in such a way that I think the conversation is as top down or driven by the headlines in Us Weekly or New York Post or the New York Post or even by the late night comedians. And our culture has, you know, a much more of a sort of um you know, ground level up quality to it, things sort of rise from the ground up. Um, and I think that when we see misogyny and hostility directed at young famous women, that it's often coming from the ground instead of from the, the air, if you will. Mm -hmm. Well, Liz, you know, going back to that Ed McMahon clip, I feel like when I watch that, you know, it's, it's obviously very uh, uncomfortable to sit through. And I feel like now if a uh, journalist was to ask that or a host of anything was going to ask that you know there'd be a hundred calls for this person to be canceled or like whatever there there's sort of more checks and balances maybe on, on the media these days yeah i think that's a great point you know i think that we don't we know that that's not okay for 
to treat a young person like that. I think, though, I've been interested to see some of the parallels. Someone pointed out, like, you know, everyone on Twitter is very feeling very preachy right now about Britney Spears. But, you know, just a few months ago, Chrissy Teigen revealed her stillbirth um, on Twitter. And, you know, the reaction that some people had was really nasty and charged. Um, so, like, let's not pretend that this sort of stuff still doesn't exist today. Um, I also think Meghan Markle is an interesting potential parallel um, with, you know, these sorts of conversations. Um, yeah, so I think that, like, we've come a long way, but we are still not perfect, for sure. Do you think Instagram's kind of given them more power, um, at least in terms of how their image is seen? I do. I do. Absolutely. I think, um, yes, more power and also, um, you know, I think it lets celebrities present themselves in ways that often feel very accessible. And so it creates a form of identification or a relationship between the audience and us and the person who's putting out there that I think feels more intimate than it ever has before, right? I mean, Chrissy Teigen is a perfect example. It's, I think, really hard not to follow her on any platform and not feel very close to her. <laughs> so, um, you know, perhaps that like there's a charitable interpretation which says that that will lead to, you know, more charitable um, just treatment and interpretations of the people around us. I do think we feel more kindly towards those that we know the best. I'd hope that that's the case. <laughs> yeah. Well, we kind of have to wrap up our conversations, but I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like to say about uh, either Britney Spears or her case or her conservatorship. Um, and I guess I just, I guess kind of your hopes for the film going forward. Maybe Liz, I'll start with you. Sure. Um, I guess I would say, you know, as Mary said, we were really surprised by the reception of the film and how interested people are in both Britney's story and her conservatorship. Um, and I think for people who are looking, who are curious about what's next and looking for, you know, what they can keep an eye on, I'd say that, you know, we expect uh, that the next court hearing on March 17th will likely involve Britney's lawyer, Samuel Ingham, um, filing further objections to the way that Jamie has managed Britney's money. So that will be an interesting thing for people to keep an eye on if you're interested to see how the conservatorship plays out. One of our efforts was to work on this collaboratively and to do so rapidly as well so that we could meet this moment and have the most impact. Um, arguably, we succeeded. And if we did, it really is because we were um, so many of us were working so diligently simultaneously, not in the same room anymore, not even in the same office, but nonetheless working at it. And then to, to answer your original question about sort of hopes for the film and its impact um, beyond today, um, you know, also tremendously moved by the response. Um, and I, I, one of the um, one of the components of the response that I was really interested in was observing a lot of women who were incredibly famous in the late '90s or early aughts um, sort of announced their support for Britney in the film online. You saw Sarah Jessica Parker do this, Courtney Love. Um, there were others, and it made me think really about um, you know the ways in which we might have misrepresented them and. Um, misread the shape of their narratives too, and how many more stories there are that might not be identical to Britney's, but where there is um, thematic overlap. And, you know, I think we're at a moment in which we can hopefully, you know, 
correct and revisit and reframe some of those narratives too. So I'd love to hear more from them. <laughs> you know, I'd love to hear more from them about um, what it was like on the other side of the lens and perhaps how some of this awareness in the culture right now is making them rethink their experiences and the way in which they were treated. Well, I'd love to see what you guys do next. And I want to thank you again so much for joining me today on Ondocs. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This was a wonderful conversation. And that's the podcast. Framing Britney Spears is playing on Crave right now. While you're here, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us? It helps new listeners find the show. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hollowell, and executive producer Laurie Few. We'll catch you at the next screening.